0: Cheer up, church, you're worse off than you think. Cheer up, church, you're standing at the brink. Don't despair, do not fear, grace is near. Those are the lyrics to a song by Charlie Peacock titled Cheer Up, Church. Charlie Peacock was influenced by the man I mentioned in last week's sermon, Jack Miller, Not only is Jack Miller famous for referring to himself as a recovering Pharisee, he is also known for saying things along these lines. Cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you ever could have imagined. Cheer up. You're far more sinful than you could ever imagine. But you're far more loved than you could ever dream. All of theology can be summed up in two sentences. Cheer up. You are worse than you think. And cheer up, God loves you more than you know. And when he was asked to explain the lyrics of his song, Cheer Up Church, Charlie Peacock said this, What's at stake in this saying is our notion of sin and grace. The more we understand just how bad the bad news is, sin, the more we are able to respond in gratitude to just how good the good news is, grace. It is possible for even the most committed Christian to have a very limited view of their own sin. He or she might consider themselves a sinner since from time to time they sin. They do something that they know is wrong and they ask God's forgiveness. The Bible does not view sin in this way, though. Instead, it speaks to a kind of total sin that has infected us like a cancer or a sickness. We are pervasively sinful. It's through and through. You're right. If you were left at this place, it would be discouraging. Thankfully, Jesus came with the total cure for total sin, and a great reversal is taking place in creation and in the hearts of people like you and me. This is really good news. Jesus died for all my sin, not just the sins I'm aware of or the ones I confess. The truth is, I am worse off than I think or know. It is amazing that God knows the extent of my rebellion against Him, even if I really don't. And He still loves me and pursues me and is committed to making me like His Son, Jesus. When I take this to heart, a smile appears on my face. I cheer up. So our big idea today is this, Grace. Cheer up. You're far more sinful than you could ever imagine. Cheer up. You're far more loved than you could ever dream. And that's what we'll see today as Jesus gives a clinic on the human heart. The most loving and caring man in all of history will explain just how awful and how grotesque the human heart is. And he won't even bat an eye when he says it. Think about it. The most holy and pure man in all of history will be surrounded by sinful and perverse hearts. And he is not disgusted or repulsed. Why? Because that's why Jesus came. To save wicked sinners. To save wicked sinners like you and me. And the words that he speaks are undeniable proof that we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. But the beauty of the gospel is that we are far more loved than we could ever, ever dream. So look at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, and hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, "'Hear me, all of you, and understand.'" There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's sobering. Jesus moves in now to correct and expose the false teaching of the Pharisees, what we looked at last week. The Pharisees wanted to regulate and control outward behavior, but Jesus is focused on the inside, on the heart, because the heart controls outward behavior. Jesus knew that what controls our hearts controls our lives. So Jesus tells the crowd that contrary to what they had been taught by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, what goes into and then out of a person, that's food, does not make him defiled or unclean. It's what comes out of him that does. It's what's already inside of his or her heart that makes someone defiled. And our hearts are so sinful that our sinfulness actually keeps us from seeing just how sinful we are. That's sobering. Our sinfulness actually keeps us from truly understanding just how sinful we are. And that's one reason why God gave the Israelites laws in the Old Testament that said certain foods were unclean. Mark tells us in verse 19 that, In this moment, Jesus declared all foods clean. There's a parenthetical note in verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. Food, of course, in and of itself, is not unclean. God declared certain foods unclean in the Mosaic law, not because they were unhealthy for people. God declared certain foods unclean so that the Israelites would be reminded that they were unclean. There is nothing wrong with bacon. God did not declare bacon unclean because bacon is bad for you. There is nothing wrong with bacon. Let me say that again. There is nothing wrong with bacon. It's the people who eat the bacon who have the issue. Nothing wrong with pork. Everything wrong with people. Bacon good, people bad. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's his big idea. Bacon good, people bad. The food laws of the Old Testament were given to remind people that they were sinners. And the sacrifices then pointed to God's love for sinners. The food said, you're unclean, you're sinful. The sacrifices said, but you can be clean, you can be forgiven. The food laws were given to remind the people that they were sinful, to increase their own understanding of their sin and to increase their understanding that God is holy. And the sacrifices reminded them that this holy God loved them and provided a way for them to know and love him. We wonder ourselves today why God gave Israel all of these rules, and we kind of scratch our heads at at rules like do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and we wonder what that's about. The answer is that God wanted them to be continually reminded of His holiness and their sin. The point wasn't to deprive the Israelites of the glories of a good BLT sandwich, that's not the point. The point was to deprive wasn't to deprive them of the glories of sausage gravy the point was that they would be continually reminded every day of God's holiness and their sinfulness and not just be reminded of it that they would grow in their understanding of both and we are too to grow in these When we are born again, we become God's adopted children. We are aware of our sinfulness, and we're aware of God's holiness, but it's a very limited awareness. But as we grow spiritually, we start to become aware of just how holy God is and just how sinful we are. It's not that God's holiness is increasing. It's not that God is somehow increasing His holiness. He is holy definitively. His holiness does not increase, and our sinfulness does not increase. We don't increase in our sinfulness, we're just made more aware of how sinful we really are. In fact, if we are growing in gospel-centered ways, we will see ourselves putting indwelling sin to death more and more, which is what Paul says in Colossians 3. Let me read it to you quickly. It's almost the same list that Jesus gives here in Mark 7. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If we're growing in gospel-centered ways, we will see ourselves putting indwelling sin to death more and more. When we grow in gospel-centered ways, we slowly become more aware of His holiness and our sinfulness. The longer that we are Christians, the more we should be increasing in our awareness of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And as our appreciation for God's holiness grows, our love and appreciation for Jesus grows too. His sacrificial life and death on our behalf becomes sweeter and sweeter to us because we know more and more just how sinful and rebellious we are because we know more and more how holy God is. His sacrificial life and death on the cross for us becomes sweeter and sweeter as we grow in gospel-centered ways because we know more and more just how sinful and rebellious and rotten we are at the core because we know more and more just how holy God is. So as the cross of Jesus looms larger and larger and becomes more central in our lives, we rejoice more in our Savior who died upon it for sinners like us. But because we are sinners and because we still have to deal with indwelling sin, we can very quickly slip into shrinking the cross because the things that Jesus lists in verses 20 to 23 still reside in our hearts. We can very easily slip into shrinking the cross. This happens when we do one of two things. We minimize God's holiness and we begin thinking of Him contrary to how His Word, how He has revealed Himself in His Word, and we start to view Him as being soft on sin. Two, We elevate our own righteousness and we begin thinking we are better than God's word has revealed us to be. And then we start getting soft on sin. The cross then becomes diminished in our lives. And instead of growing in an awareness of God's holiness... And in awareness of our sinfulness, we begin to stall out. And that usually leads to pretending or performing. We pretend that we're not as bad as we are and we perform and try to do things to appease this holy God. As if we could ever do anything to appease a holy God in and of ourselves. Because we still... Have all of these things that Jesus mentions in verses 20 to 23 residing in our hearts because indwelling sin still remains even after we are regenerated. We are often prone to forget the gospel. Listen, if you don't think that what Jesus says in verses 20 to 23 are true, I mean, you should take him at his word because he's Jesus, okay? But if you want to fight against him on that and say, I don't know if that's true, just get on social media. Hang out in the comment sections on Facebook and blogs and the threads of Twitter and you'll see that what Jesus says in these verses is absolutely true of every single one of us we are often prone to forget the gospel because we have indwelling sins still remaining we can very easily develop gospel amnesia where what Peter says can be true of us 2 Peter 1.9 for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins when we are not rooted in the gospel and what Jesus has already done for us through his perfect life and death our experience of his goodness can shrink We get amnesia. So growing in the gospel means that we see more of God's holiness and more of our sin. But that doesn't sound very enticing, does it? See God more and more as holy. And see me more and more as sinful and rebellious against this holy God? It doesn't sound like fun being exposed that way, does it? Being reminded more and more that you are sinful? It doesn't sound fun, does it? But because of Jesus and because of the cross, we don't have to be afraid to see God or ourselves more clearly. Because of the cross, we don't have to be afraid of seeing God more clearly or seeing ourselves as we truly are more clearly. We do not have to fear seeing God as he really is, nor fear seeing ourselves as we really are, which is messed up, broken, rebellious, selfish sinners. Because our hope does not reside in our goodness. We rest in the finished work of Jesus for us. When we grow in our awareness of these two areas, it brings God glory because we are taken back to the cross time and time again as our only hope And Jesus is glorified once again as the Savior of sinners. So, cheer up, Grace. You're far more sinful than you could ever, ever imagine. You have no idea. But cheer up. You're far more loved than you could ever, ever dream. There's a Latin phrase that Martin Luther uses to describe us that captures this thought Simul justus et peccator. It means simultaneously just or righteous and sinner. We are justified in God's eyes. We are forgiven. We've been declared righteous, all because we are now in union with Christ. But we still sin, right? We're still sinners. We are a Romans seven people. I think Romans seven is Paul close to the end of his life, probably the most advanced he's ever been in spiritual growth and sanctification and holiness. And Paul still says in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. It's the bad that I don't want to do that I keep on doing. We truly are a Romans 7 people. We want to do good, but we do bad. How many of us this week wanted to do good? And then we did bad. And the bad that we didn't want to do, that we're like, I'm not doing that. We did it we hate the bad we want to do good but we often choose the bad that's because we are still sinners even after we become christians the gospel is only for sinners and there's the rub we sin every day and that can be depressing but we're still blameless in god's eyes even though we sin every day so in Christ. By virtue of our union with Christ by faith, we have died decisively to sin and have been made alive with Christ. That's a fact. But experientially, we continue to struggle with sin. That's a fact, too. We have to affirm both of these simultaneously. This is why Paul says that we must reckon ourselves or think of ourselves as dead to sin. It's not my master anymore. I'm a slave to righteousness now. Why? Because we are not yet experientially dead to sin. So we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin. And if we think that somehow, and if we think that we have somehow arrived, we will not face our sins for what they are. And if we do not face them, we cannot repent of them and die to them. If we think somehow, I've arrived, I'm pretty good then we will not face our sins for what they are. And if we do not face them, we cannot repent of them and die to them. Rod Rosenblatt said, Repentance involves putting a wooden stake through the vampire heart of, I'm getting better, until we can say, all I have is Christ. Repentance involves driving a wooden stake through the vampire heart that says, I'm getting better, I'm really doing this Christian thing. But are we really getting better? How many of you still struggle with the same sins that you have always struggled with? Are we really getting better? If that's the main point of Christianity, then we're in trouble because we're just like the Pharisees. We're just like the nation of Israel. We're just like every other bumbling idiot in the Bible. If the point of Christianity is getting better, we're in a lot of trouble. The point of Christianity is that we get better. Let me ask you, how's that working out for you? I don't like to think in terms of getting better. If I'm going to go with something, I like the word transformed, it's biblical. How are we transformed? Paul says by the renewing of our minds, he says in Romans 12. Not by willpower, not by subjecting our bodies, not by giving up sugar or becoming a vegan or just pure discipline and sweat. No, it's as we renew our minds, as we think differently. And that's what the word repentance means. It means to change one's mind, change the way you think. It's as we think differently. As we repent, as we begin to really let God's promises take root in our hearts. Put very simply, it's just gospel rehearsal. It's calling to mind again, remembering, thinking again, what Jesus has already done for us and secured for us. That's how we are transformed. So yes, we are being transformed. Yes, we are being conformed to the image of Christ by the Spirit of God. But if we think in terms of getting better, we will be disappointed because we will always sin in this life. There will never be a day in this life where we don't sin multiple times. You know, I've met people through the years who are like, I haven't sinned in like three months. I just want to punch those people (laughs) because I'm like, I'm about to break your record right now. Probably go to jail for assault, but at least I proved the point to you. There will never be a day in this life where we don't sin multiple times. I can't even put a number on the number of times that we sin per day because one, it would shock all of us, and two, that number would still be far too low. Again, let's listen to Jesus in verses 20 to 23 as he exposes our hearts. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You know, Jesus could have kept the list going, right? In the Bible, the the book of Mark chapter 7 would be like this big, Right? He's painting a picture broadly here. He says that these sins are in our hearts and they defile us. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises that we're God's people and he wants to be with us and have a relationship with us and dwell with us, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Though we are forgiven, though we are justified, we still defile ourselves and need cleansing, which comes through the blood of Jesus. And this is why we still need repentance. We're already forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, but repentance still plays a role in our sanctification. Repentance involves putting a wooden stake through the vampire heart of thinking, I'm not that bad. Repentance involves putting a wooden stake to the vampire heart of thinking that there's no hope to conquer sin because there is hope. Repentance involves putting a wooden stake to the vampire heart of thinking that our sins are just not that bad. Repentance involves putting a wooden stake to the vampire heart of trying to perform for God's love and affection. Repentance is accepting that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And that you will never outgrow that need in this life, even if you live to be 200 years old. You see, we have an aversion to this kind of weakness, an allergy to being this dependent on God, don't we? As if we, we could stay on this trajectory and we think, well, 150 years from now, I'd need, I'd need Jesus less. Because I would just keep growing and getting better. We will never need Jesus less. We need him the same as a three-year-old Christian and the same as a 99-year-old Christian. We never outgrow our need of Jesus. And he never outgrows his desire to be with us. This holy God wants a relationship with us, with people who have this junk in our hearts. He simply cannot get close enough to us. Jesus never finds a heart that's too dirty, too filthy, too gross to clean. He never finds one that is absolutely repulsive and beyond his love, beyond his cleansing, beyond his grace. In fact, that's all he deals with. Sick hearts, disgustingly gross hearts are his specialty. The most pure and holy person to ever live who knows your heart inside and out, every nook and cranny, he wants to be with you. He knows your heart better than you do. And he wants to be with you. You've tricked everybody else. And Jesus is like, I see through it all. It's a facade. And I still want to be with you. That's why we say grace is amazing. Because we all know people that are messed up, And we avoid them like the plague, don't we? People who annoy us, bother us, irritate us. And we don't want to be around those people, do we? We are those people and Jesus wants to be around us. It's amazing. And when we come to grips with what Jesus says about our hearts, it's the dawning of realism for us. It's getting real. Honesty is is coming alive. Honesty is is coming out of the grave. It's being resurrected, broken hearted. Self-awareness is waking up in that moment. Understand this, Grace. Down deep, where we'd rather not go, is where Jesus awaits us. Deep down inside of our hearts, where we would rather not go, and we numb ourselves and we try to cover it up and we stay busy deep down inside of us where we don't want to go, that's where Jesus is waiting. Down deep in the darkest place of our hearts, that's where Jesus is. We'd rather not go there because it's painful to see what's down there, isn't it? It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing what's deep down inside my heart. But that's where Jesus is, down deep. Where we'd rather not go is where Jesus awaits us. Jesus wants us to open up the coffin of our vampire hearts and see what's in there, and then through faith in His work, by His grace, enabled by God's Spirit, to repent of and confess our sins, That's where Jesus meets us at the coffin of our hearts. That's where freedom is. It's where we'll find it. No more darkness, bringing it into the light. That's where freedom is. That is where freedom is when you come clean. We don't want to go there, but that's where Jesus is, waiting to set us free. He knows what's inside your heart. He knows you hate it. He does too. He doesn't want you to climb in your coffin and hide from his light. Not because he loves exposing people so he can feel superior. He does love exposing our hearts because when he does it, he does it mercifully to heal us, to set us free. And he does it with kindness. And compassion. He loves to lift open the creaky coffin lids on our vampire hearts that are covered with cobwebs that reek so that he can set us free. So let me ask you this morning what are you hiding? What are you hiding deep down inside your heart? What is it that you're hiding? deep down in those dark places where you don't want to go that you need to bring out into the light and confess it and be free. What do you need to bring out into the light? You're safe to do it with Jesus. The bad news is that everything that the Bible says about sin is true of you. The bad news is that everything that Jesus says about sin from this passage is true of you. And the good news of the gospel is that everything that the Bible says about God's love is true for you. That means that Jesus can know all this stuff about you, all this list that he mentions in verses 20 to 23, and he can still love you. That's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Jesus knows all of this junk that you and I have in our hearts that we're trying desperately to hide from everybody that we don't want anybody to know about, and He still loves us. Jesus knows our veins are still full of sewage, and He still loves us and wants to be with us. When He looks at us, does He see people who have committed murder? Does he see people who slander, lie, steal, commit immorality? Does he see how we envy others or how prideful we are or how foolish we are when he sees us? No. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's the gospel, friends. When God looks at us with all this junk in our hearts, he sees Jesus. We wouldn't even recognize ourselves if we were able to see through God's eyes because we actually look like Jesus. Isn't that crazy? We wouldn't recognize ourselves if we could see ourselves through God's eyes because we look just like Jesus. If you could see yourself through God's eyes, you wouldn't see a failure, a loser. You'd see Jesus. You wouldn't recognize yourself if you could see yourself through God's eyes because you look like you look just like Jesus to him. In the gospel, we look in the mirror. And we don't see verses 20 to 23. When we look at the law, God's law exposes us and says, Yeah, verses 20 and 23 are you. But in the gospel, we look in the mirror and we don't see these verses. In the gospel, we look in the mirror and we see Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that when you look in the mirror, your reflection is Jesus. Even though you and I still have sewage running through our veins. Because we are in union with Christ, when we look in the mirror our reflection is Jesus. So cheer up, Grace. You're far more sinful than you can imagine even this far into the sermon. But cheer up because you are far more loved than you could ever, ever, ever dream. In spite of how messed up we are, Jesus welcomes us. He invites us to his feast. So we'll close with something that Chad Bird said. And let this be your invitation to Jesus this morning. Let this be your invitation to the Lord's Supper today. And if you're not a Christian and you have not repented, that means to turn away from your sins, quit living for you, and turn back to God, your creator. If you're not a Christian, you haven't repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, this invitation is for you right now. You can do that. Come and open the empty hands of faith and say, I need you, Jesus. And if you are a Christian, this invitation is still for you for all of us as we approach the Lord's table today and celebrate communion. So come. Come with your sin. Come with the junk that still resides and comes out of your heart. Drag your sorry, creaky, cobweb-covered coffin heart to this table today. Let him open it and set you free. Come and eat and drink. Come, you pole dancers. And Sunday school teachers and crazy old cat ladies. Come to the feast. Come you snotty nosed brats. And dirty old men and abortionists. Come to the feast. Come you Bible thumping Baptists. And smells and bells Anglicans. And holier than thou Lutherans. Come to the feast. Come you virgins and porn stars. You pious and predators. You straight as an arrow and you LGBTQs. Come to the feast. It is finished. The lamb has been slain. His blood has painted the wicked world white. His table is laden with life. And there's a place setting with your name written on it. Come to the feast. Have you slept with more people than you can remember? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a pure virgin in Jesus, the righteous one. Have you murdered and stolen and raped and devastated life after life along the way? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a saint by the Holy One of God. Have you vomited up more meals than you've digested? Cut yourself just to feel something real? Starved yourself to skin and bones just to feel unfat? Come to the feast and be welcomed as drop dead Gorgeous by the one who is incarnate love. Have you faithfully prayed, fasted, done devotions, served in soup kitchens, tithed from your gross income, and memorized 1,000 Bible verses? There's room at the table for you too. Come to the feast and be welcomed by him who takes away your filthy righteousness and clothes you with his own. Come to the tomb of Jesus and laugh at the ugly, deformed, twisted face of death. Come to the throne of Jesus and let the Father hug you and kiss you and wipe away your tears. Come to the feast where evil and good, wise and foolish, shameful and shaming are welcomed as citizens of the kingdom. Let no one say, I am unworthy, for Christ makes you worthy. Let no one say, I have sinned too much, for your sin is no longer your own. Let no one say, I don't believe enough, for Christ has trusted perfectly in your stead. Let no one say, I have blasphemed, for Jesus has exchanged your curse for a blessing. Everything is ready. Let no one be left hungry. Gather all and bring them in. Go to the highways and byways, bars and alleys, nursing homes and hospitals, seminaries and sex shops, and bring them to the feast. Let no one be left behind. The world, the whole jacked up, navel-gazing, sin-loving, evil, addicted world has been set right by the God who died and rose again. All are forgiven, all are covered, all are welcome. Come, one and all, come to the feast. You're welcome here today. All of this good news can be true for you if you turn from your sin and you trust in the Savior. So come, repent, and come. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you welcome people like us at your table. That there's a place setting with each of our individual names on it. We don't deserve it because you are holy. And Father, even though for those of us who are here are your children and we're in union with your son and we're righteous in your eyes, God, we still sin and we hate it. And we keep doing it. And we keep asking for forgiveness and we keep doing it, God. Forgive us. For those of us here who have deep, dark secrets buried in our hearts that we need to bring out into the light, would you give us grace to do that today? Would you set all of us free, Lord? Set us free. From these sins which entangle us and help us to run the race with perseverance with our eyes fixed on your Son. Would you feed us from your table today that we would be refreshed and renewed and set free. Help us and do this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.